you know, food service on an EP3 was pretty lacking and we were eating out of box lunches. But what I'll never forget on the Nimrod R was after takeoff, here came a guy down the trolley with tea and crumpets. <laughs> this is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so you don't miss out on any of the episodes. KC flew the US Navy's airborne electronic reconnaissance during the 1980s in the Lockheed EP-3, which is the electronic signals reconnaissance version of the P-3 Orion. He flew as a navigator, senior electronic warfare evaluator and mission commander. We hear about several missions he was involved in, including his first detachment to Athens, the then main US Navy operating base for missions in the Mediterranean and the Adriatic. We also hear about flying in the Baltic from bases in the UK, such as RAF Mildenhall and RAF Witten, and from West Germany, from Schleswig Jagel. Flying from Keflavik in Iceland, KC monitored a huge Soviet Navy exercise in the Norwegian Sea involving the Kiev, the Kirov, as well as numerous cruisers, destroyers and frigates. In the 1980s, Libya was claiming the Gulf of Sidra as its territorial waters and KC flew in support of freedom of navigation operations involving US Navy ships. It's a great insight into a relatively unknown part of Cold War air operations. Now, Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. As a monthly supporter, you'll get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us. It really helps get new guests on the show. Now, back to today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome KC to our Cold War Conversation. In the EP3, the way we worked it, uh, we had several naval flight officers on the crew, and, and you would start off as a navigator, a navigator trainee, actually, and you would usually get a oh, maybe a couple hundred hours uh, doing that, and then you'd be uh, made the navigator, and then at, at some point, you would switch to the back to be uh, an evaluator trainee, and there were about three two or three eval trainees in the back and then they were all working to be uh the person that was called the cval which was the senior electronic warfare tactical evaluator that's kind of similar on a p3 they had the tactical coordinator the taco in the back that runs it cval is kind of the equivalent of that and then so the cval would be running the show in the back in the front there were three pilots and the senior of those would be the electronic warfare aircraft commander also called the ewac and then uh, between those two, uh, one of the either the CVAL or the EWAC would be designated as the mission commander and would be have responsibility for the conduct of the mission. The aircraft commander would have responsibility for any safety of flight issues. What sort of equipment was there on board initially when when you were with the Ares One anyway? 
if, if you started the airplane and went to the back, you had a flight station that had two pilot seats and then a flight engineer uh, seat in the middle. And then coming back on, on the left side of the aircraft, you had a secure comm operator. That was a cryptologic technician who ran a keyboard uh, and maintained communications either with a shore base or we could also uh, have that communication with the aircraft carrier. And then across from them, there was a radio operator. He uh, he monitored a command and control uh, circuit, a uh, high-frequency command and control circuit, but he also acted as the technician that would do any troubleshooting on any of the uh, avionics up in the front or the radios. Next to him was the navigator, and if you had a navigator trainee, there'd be two guys there. Going back, you'd get to the what we would call the ELINT inline, and that had uh, five operators, uh, basically a couple of guys working the lower lower radar frequencies, more like early warning radars and things like that, and a couple of guys working the higher frequencies, which were usually associated with uh, either airborne intercept radars or just weapon systems. Next to them was a guy called the Big Look, and he operated a big uh, 12-foot dish antenna that uh, had a great deal of sensitivity, and he was able to monitor the entire spectrum. And frequently, the way it usually worked was Big Look would detect something, and he would pass it off to the operators down the inline, and they would take off. And he was always kind of in the search search role, uh, detecting signals of interest, and then handing them off to uh, to the other operators. Next to him on the Ares one, we had a plotter. Uh, this was before the days of having computers, so one of the evaluator trainees would be sitting at a light table that would have a map on map on top, and then onion skin paper on top of that, and he would be manually plotting lines of bearing uh, to the radars as we got intercepts uh, that came in. Next to him was a guy that was called the lab tech, the lab technician, lab op. He was a cryptologic technician that was an ELINT specialist. Uh, all the other uh, the other five guys I said that were on the ELINT inline, they were really uh, uh, electronic warfare operators that were also maintainers. And the not necessarily ELINT specialists, they were more just the guys that would operate the gear and they had enough uh, expertise they knew the they knew the signals in, in in ins and outs and could identify the signals and work them the lab op was kind of there to uh, help with things that we didn't know what they were and he he was the real specialist that would get into the what we called the beeps and squeaks and figure out what we were looking at he also managed all the recording of any signals of interest Behind him, you had one of the other evaluator trainees who was sitting at the end of what was called the special, uh, the special uh, inline, and that was op- uh, that was manned by cryptologic technicians. That was a combination of guys that were either linguists or uh, what we called special signals operators. And then the senior tactical evaluator, he usually was on a rover cord just walking around, listening to everything and being able to, he could go all the way up to the flight station or basically go to any any station on the aircraft and see what they were doing. He was really running the show uh, just while on a rover cord. You're listening in on signals and, well, communication signals, and you're also listening in on radar signatures or weapons system signatures is that 
Would that be a correct summary? Basically, what you could say is we were monitoring the radio frequency spectrum. And within that part of the spectrum, there was certain parts of it that where you find radars and certain parts of it where you find communications. So you arrive in Spain. What, um, what were your uh, missions from Spain? Well, we actually, the squadron was based in Spain, and I should say uh, that I was in Fleet Air Reconnaissance Squadron 2, and there were only two squadrons of the world that did what we did, uh, the SIGINT mission. One was over in Guam, Fleet Air Reconnaissance Squadron 1. We were also known as, uh, they were VQ-1, we were VQ-2, and, uh, but we actually flew very few missions out of Rota. Uh, and when I started talking about the squadron, I should also say we had both land-based airplanes, EP-3s, and carrier-based airplanes, EA-3B Sky Warriors. And so the uh, the land-based uh, guys, we generally we did most of our work out of Athens at Hellenicon Air Base uh, down there, and mostly from there we flew. 90% of the time, either in the East Med off of the Levant countries, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and Egypt. And then we also flew uh, missions in the Central Med, which was off of Libya. Uh, that was about 90% of the missions split between those two. About 10% of the time we flew in the Adriatic, if that. Those were not high-priority missions, and they were frequently... Uh, canceled so they could reschedule uh, more interesting missions in the in the East Med or the Sent Med, and then we occasionally would go to Siganella, Sicily. That was primarily for exercises uh, that we went there. We we occasionally flew missions out of there, and then in the summer we would go up to the fly in the Baltic Sea uh, from March till about October. Usually about ten days a month, we'd send a crew up to either the UK usually RAF Mildenhall or RAF Witten. And if they weren't uh, working out of the UK, we'd go to where the German uh, Atlantiques, uh, the electric Atlantiques worked out of, which was Schleswig-Jagel up in the Schleswig-Holstein part of Germany. I, d- I understand that your your first detachment was actually in Panama. Yeah, that was actually the whole three years I was in the squadron. That was the only time we ever sent anyone to uh, down to Central America what happened there was in about August of 84, uh, there were crates uh, that were imaged uh, being loaded on a merchant ship in Sevastopol in the Crimea. And so the, the crateologists that look at things like that and try to figure out what's in the crate, they thought they might be taking MiGs. And there was worry that uh, MIGs were going to be introduced down to Nicaragua. Of course, at that time, uh, the U.S. was being uh, friendly and trying to support the gov- government in El Salvador and were worried about uh, the Marxist regime and re- revolution leaking over into El Salvador. The reason we were sent down there was there was, there was another reconnaissance platform uh, that was grounded uh, due to some kind of maintenance issue or something. And so we got sent down there just kind of uh, because we were available. So we went down to Howard Air Force Base in Panama and spent about s- six, seven weeks down there and had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, not, not a bad start, that. Not a bad start. Not at all. Um, so, so when you're flying out of... Um, 
Athens. I mean, you, you described the different areas that you were concentrating on, but I was interested to see that you were also looking at the Adriatic and Yugoslavia and Albania as well. Yes, uh, very infrequently. I think they scheduled something like two flights a month to do that. And uh, to tell you the truth, we really usually didn't get much uh, when we did that. But I think they, the European Command had some requirements for, you know, occasionally getting in that neck of the woods. So that's what we did. Yeah, it sounds like you just had to tick a box to say that you'd been out that way. When when you mentioned the the Levant and the Mediterranean coast, obviously at this point Libya is becoming a problem for the U.S. Yeah, it it really started uh, I think heating up around 1980, and in '81 there was a fairly famous shoot down of uh, a couple F-14s shot down a couple of uh, fitters uh, in, in the summer of '81, and then. Uh, the Gaddafi had declared uh, the Gulf of Sidra kind of an almost, I don't know if you call it an inland waterway or whatever. He, he claimed that it was Libyan territorial airspace and uh, the United States didn't agree with, with that. So they would routinely, I, I don't remember, maybe quarterly have operations where they we would just assert freedom of navigation rights by operating in the area that they claimed uh, was theirs. And that would be done with either warships or maybe tactical aircraft flying in there. Yeah, this was Gaddafi's infamous line of death. Yes, it wasn't was. It? Where if you cross that, you were potentially in trouble. But more often, it seems like his Air Force was more in trouble. Um, <laughs> now, in February 85, there's a bombing in Greece, a terrorist bomb attack, which does impact uh, some of the EP3 crews. Yeah, actually, well, what happened was there was a bar in Athens that was actually kind of popular with both the EP3 guys and the Air Force operated one RC-135s out of there too. So uh, we weren't uh, we weren't exercising very good anti-terrorism awareness by congregating in places. And what ended up happening was someone came in with a satchel and put it down and it exploded. And we, we got pretty lucky because there was about, I think, four or five people that were injured, nobody seriously. They were they mostly burns or uh, there were some ruptured eardrums. So they had to be flown up to the hospital in Germany. But it really didn't, uh, you know, I, I don't think uh, either the EPs or RC-135s even missed any missions over that. But what did result out of that was the, at that point, the Americans between the Air Force and the Navy, we had had people in three hotels and the government made the decision the air force did to acquire a single a single hotel and then they brought in a lot of uh anti-terrorism things like car bomb you know blockers you know the big concrete things around the perimeter and also had air force uh, security force guys uh, with machine gun you know m16s that were basically on the perimeter we had been fat yeah. dumb and happy and then they we got kind of a wake-up call yeah, yeah. Well, I, th I think there was a further bus bombing in 87. Yeah, yeah. that was uh, – <laughs> it was kind of funny. The Air Force had these uh, crew buses that were basically in the U.S. They're, they're called Bluebird buses. They're used for schools. And the Air Force had them, and they were blue, and they were painted U.S. Air Force on the side. And then after uh, – when the terrorism threat kind of raised, they decided we need to have a, 
a lower profile, so they had these American school buses painted white and green. I don't know that they were really fooling anybody. <laughs> so th- they ended up uh, having a uh, an incident in the summer '87 where basically uh, a bomb was set by the road, and as the bus was driving by, it detonated. Uh, fortunately, there uh, nobody was killed in that in that incident incident either. Kind of a closer call was I had mentioned we were all put together in one hotel. And a few months after we did that, uh, there had been some uh, uh, bomb threats being called in. And they had kind of the procedure when that would happen, they'd always come in in the middle of the night and they'd evacuate everyone out to the back to the or out to the front to the parking lot. Well, then one night the same thing happened. And just I don't know why, but for some reason, they evacuated everyone out to the back to the tennis courts and a car bomb went off out front. So we, we dodged a bullet on that one. Wow. Yeah, close call indeed. Um, and who was carrying out these bomb attacks? Uh, actually, uh, the, the one in the bar was attributed to, I think some Palestinian terrorist group ended up uh, t- uh, claiming it. Uh, however, there had been some, uh, in Athens, there had been a problem with... Uh, some assassinations of high-level American people earlier in that decade. The the defense attaché was killed. I don't recall if he was shot or he was bombed. And I think one other senior officer at the embassy was killed. Those were not associated with uh, uh, external terrorist groups. It was actually a domestic uh, Greek terrorist group called 17 November that operated for a long time and they they were the ones that took credit for those killings of the two uh, American military officers yeah that's right I think they were a left-wing terrorist group the following month you're at you're at Mildenhall flying in the Baltic how different were those missions to the missions that you were flying in the Mediterranean uh, the, the Baltic missions were entirely different uh because that was the only time we got to go in uh, into an area where there would be uh, Russian air defense force uh, bases uh, where they would routinely uh, intercept us. Uh, we we used to uh, we would see the Russians in the Mediterranean, but there was no uh, you know no fighter aircraft down there. It was just maritime patrol aircraft, things like that, and helicopters on ship. But when we would fly in the Baltic. Uh, we would routinely be reacted to several times every mission uh, by Russian fighters, usually Su-15 Flagons or MiG-23 Floggers, occasionally MiG-25 Foxbats. And toward the end of my career, we started seeing uh, MiG-29 Fulcrums. But these were really just routine intercepts, uh, not at all as scary as the... Uh, the intercepts that were described in the recent podcast you did about the Able Archers and the KAL 007 debris area. Ours were, our, this was about 18 months after that. And this is by now the fall of 85. A lot of the tensions uh, between the America, uh, well, between NATO and the Soviet Union had kind of ebbed. So by 85, when we were getting intercepted, uh, the Russians would just come up, do an ID pass on us, and go home. There was nothing uh, hostile at all. It was just routine stuff, the exact same things that the U.S. would do when TU-95 bears used to fly from uh, 
the Kola Peninsula down to Cuba and our interceptors uh, out of the United States, uh, generally Air National Guard interceptors, would intercept them routinely just like they were intercepting us. Yeah, it's incredible how the temperature changed in those two years. Amazing. I think it's it's a good thing for mankind. <laughs> well, absolutely. After after recording that Abel Archer episode, you're very right about that. It appears as though every time there was a hijack or anything going on, you, you were routinely scrambled is probably the wrong word, but sort of involved in tracking. Yeah, and I think what was behind that was the EP3 had a very, compared to an RC-135, we didn't burn nearly as much fuel. We could stay up a lot longer without, without we didn't have an in-flight refueling capability. And RCs, if they were going to fly more than about seven hours, they generally would get refueled. So with the with the turboprop, we were generally able to hang out for a long time. Uh, there was an incident in uh, June of 1985 uh, that was called the TWA-847 hijacking. And that one actually went on for a couple weeks. And uh, what happened there was it was an American airliner taking off out of Athens that was hijacked by uh, a Palestinian uh, group and they uh, went to Beirut and landed, and uh, they actually there was a Navy uh, diver, a CB diver, not a, not a SEAL, but more of a construction diver, uh, on the plane that they executed and dumped out on the ramp. But then over the course of two weeks, uh, they they shuttled back and forth between Beirut and Algeria, and so the the EP3 guys we monitored, we basically had an airplane on station the entire time with just a few little gaps. And one of the things that was very challenging was when the Boeing 727, the TWA airplane, was going to go from Beirut to uh, to Algeria, they obviously had a great speed advantage over a turboprop. So our guys would generally get a heads up about 30 minutes prior to them taking off, and they'd just put the uh, power down all the way and start heading toward Algeria and then eventually they'd get over, you know, flown flown past by the 727, and they'd have, and then uh, make their way over there and, and and get there to resume the orbit. I can't believe how busy your 1985 was because then you're uh, detached to Keflavik to follow a huge Soviet Navy exercise. Yeah, that was in, in July, and uh, that that was in, in the. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. You know, two tours flying EP3s and then being in the Navy for 23 years, that was that one day we were out there, I saw more Russian ships than I saw 
probably in the last uh, 16 years of my career after leaving VQ2 at 87 before I retired, uh, that one day uh, there was this massive Russian exercise going on in the Norwegian Sea and we were flying out there and saw almost every you know every class of ship you could in there in their order of battle and the, the ones of course we were most interested in were the Kiev class uh their their aircraft carrier with uh uh Yak 36 forgers on board as well as uh, uh KA25 hormone helos and then we also the the Kirov class uh Nuclear-powered cruiser was out there, which was, there were only two of them in the world, so we were pretty excited to get a chance to see that. And then, of course, the one of the sister ships of the the Moskva, the the ship that was just hit off of uh, and sank off of uh, the Ukraine, that their sister ship, the Slava, was out there that day. And Slava, Kirov, and Kiev were really the three big ships of the Russian navies. And of course, the uh, uh, although we didn't see them, I'm, I'm sure the the submarines were out there too. And uh, the, the other real key key player in in the Soviet Navy at that time was the Oscar class uh, guided missile submarine, uh, which had the real long range uh, anti ship missiles. And then of course they had some uh, at that time their uh, top uh, attack subs were Victor threes. Were the Soviet aircraft buzzing you? when you were monitoring this? No, the, the the forgers didn't really have much of an air-to-air capability. They didn't have any kind of radar in that airplane. They were really more of a, I don't know if you'd say air-to-ground or anti-ship capability. They, they really, there really wasn't much much about them. One thing kind of interesting that day, though, uh, they actually lost a forger that day. Uh, and it just so happened one of the P3s that was out there had had cameras on the guy ejecting, and actually it was the front, you know, made the newspaper because they had a great picture of this uh, forger that it nose had pitched up, and you see the guy see the ejection seat coming out of the aircraft. But uh, no, to answer your question, uh, the at that point the Russian Navy uh, didn't have much of a their their anti aircraft capability was really surface air missiles. The Forger was the sort of Soviet attempt to emulate the Harrier, wasn't it? It was a vertical takeoff. Yes. Although it, one thing different about the Harrier, the, the Harrier could take off either going straight up, but a much more fuel efficient way to take off was to get some speed. And then, you know, how the British had put the ramps uh, the, on the end of the Invincible class carriers. And that's, I think that's really done for, the you know you have a finite amount of fuel and uh, you use so much less fuel by doing that the forgers didn't have that capability so they had extremely short legs i don't you know maybe 30 minute missions or something like that tops wow yeah. <laughs> it's hardly worth taking off for 30 minutes so what yeah <laughs> um because you've obviously sent me some information through, which has been really useful to me but in august 85 a busy month flying mm-hmm. from athens what does that mean? What what does a busy month look like for an EP3? I don't remember anything specifically, but I kind of looked at my logbook and saw I'd flown a bunch. And it was, 85 was very busy. So in that time, we probably would have flown about 40% of the missions in the East Med and 60% in the Sent Med off of Libya. Uh, ordinarily... Uh, you know, we we would be out there flying our tracks, whether there were ships, out, U.S. Navy ships out that or not. We kind of operated independently, doing uh, intelligence collection missions 
on on behalf of the Sixth Fleet, and then they had requirements to satisfy national collection requirements. So we would be supporting that. And then if the carriers were out there, which were always a lot more interesting for us because we would integrate very closely with the carrier in terms of providing threat warning or just giving them kind of we could provide a lot of information to the E2 to help him figure out what, what those radar tracks were on his scope. And that, that was one of our big missions was working closely with the E2 to help, uh, you know, gain the situational awareness uh, for, the, for the carrier battle group. But I will, I will say also, so flying down in the East Med was always really interesting. Of course, at that time, uh, the Israelis were mixing it up a lot with the Syrians all the time. Uh, and they were doing also, uh, they were kind of doing demonstration of force missions flying over Beirut, you know, the Bekaa Valley in Beirut, just to show that they could. Uh, and so there was very frequently, there was, you know, shooting going on uh, with with uh, triple uh, anti-aircraft artillery or something in the back of alley or, you know, getting shot at them. And whenever that happened, they would then retaliate, you know, come in and drop bombs or whatever. So it was never boring flying off of Israel. I'm, I'm just thinking there was that incident with the USS Liberty and the Israelis where they uh, attacked a, an American surveillance ship that was in international waters, I believe, uh, but they suspected it was Egyptian. Yes, they, they the initial reports were they thought it was an Egyptian horse carrier. <laughs> that actually happened during the Six Day War, and there was actually my squadron VQ two, our, our predecessor airplane, an EC one twenty one, was actually on top uh, when all that happened, and so uh, collected a lot of information on that. There's always been a lot of uh, speculation that it, the Israelis said they didn't know it was an American ship. There's always been speculation both ways. You know, I don't think we really, I don't think we really know definitively. But but the bottom line was uh, they came out initially with some airplanes and did some strafing, but then followed that up with patrol boats that put a at least one torpedo into the side and did some pretty significant damage, killed killed several people. Fortunately. Uh, the Liberty had excellent damage control because to have a uh, torpedo rip a big hole in the side of the ship, the torpedo comes in below the waterline. So that makes, uh, from a damage control perspective, uh, it's pretty amazing they saved that ship. And then into September, you're with Ocean Safari 85, which is a NATO exercise. Yeah, that was really... uh, I got to do those two summers in a row, and those were always a great deal because we would... uh, you know, it was something different than hanging out in the med and go, going up there. And in the, the Ocean Safari 85, we worked out of RAF Macrahanish near uh, Campbelltown, Scotland, up there on the Mulligan Tire. Had a great time. We always would, uh, we generally would only bring one airplane, but we'd bring two crews and you'd fly every other day. And the, the airplane flew every day. And so we had uh, good missions and then a lot of good time off. Uh, those missions are very good. We, we flew long hours, flew up. Uh, basically, those those uh, big NATO exercises would generally start with the carrier battle group forming up off of Norfolk, and then it would go for about you know a week as they transited across. And at that point, they were working on a tactic of operating inside the Vestfjord, which is up north of Buda, uh, Norway. 
And basically, it was this uh, giant fjord that had very high uh, rock walls around it. And the idea was the carrier would go in there and operate and would be protected by, they'd be in the shadow of the uh, of the hills. So any Russian aircraft that were exercising uh, anti-carrier warfare coming out uh, to simulate missile shots, their targeting would be greatly complicated because these guys were hiding and basically hiding in the in the terrain and were shadowed by the by the rocks. So we would uh, operate well north of there, off the North Cape, and just run a north-south orbit. And our job was to detect the uh, the strike aircraft, which were generally uh, Tu-16 uh, Badgers, occasionally Tu-22M uh, backfires. And our job was to detect them and then work with the E-2 so the E-2 could get fighters on them because the Navy kind of had a standing rule that no hostile airplanes could get within 200 miles of the carrier without an F-14 on their wing. So that was, all, that was one of the primary reasons that we were stationed out far ahead was because it, you know, those, other, those airplanes were coming in pretty fast and it took a great deal of coordination to be able to get the fighters on them. Now, you've mentioned the E-2 a couple of times there. This was the Northrop Grumman Hawkeye, an all-weather airborne early warning turboprop aircraft, I believe. Yep, and, and still operating. And actually, my son-in-law is a Navy pilot with the, with the VAW-123 screw tops out of Norfolk, Virginia. So he's flying the E-2 today. Wow. Wow. I'm, I am constantly amazed at the number of Cold War era aircraft okay albeit improved designs from those original aircraft but mm-hmm. you know the same sort of airframe still flying i mean you take the the u2 i hadn't even realized the e2 had been you know around as well and there's there's right. quite a number of others as well well the b52 is probably the the most famous sure <laughs> Well, and you know, when you look at a, a, an E-2, which, which I think uh, the E-2A came out in maybe about, I don't know, late 60s. So these airplanes have been around over 50 years. Obviously, these air, they've been buying new ones all along. They're now buying the E-2D, which is called the Advanced Hawkeye. And, and that's about, uh, in fact, my son-in-law is in the only E-2C squadron left on, on the uh, East Coast. They're, they're in the process. They've been... Uh, swapping out, uh, putting new squadrons of E2Ds, uh, taking over for E2Cs for the past few years, but it's it's just amazing that that airplane has been able to stay relevant. Uh, but I think the I don't think anything inside that airplane is the same that it was. You know, new motors, new radar, and obviously the computers are what make the, make that thing sing. Just going back to the Ocean Safari exercise, I think you flew some quite long missions there i mean what what were your sort of normal mission lengths that you were airborne for well when we were flying our just standard missions in the mediterranean we were usually scheduled for eight hours we we would always have enough gas and it was routine to extend for an hour uh if we if we knew we could be scheduled for a 12-hour mission uh and we just put on more gas uh, when we were flying those missions in Ocean Safari, they wanted us to maximize the time on orbit off the North Cape. So what we were actually doing was we were flying about 12 
And then we would land in Andoya, Norway, uh, which is way up north there around the Vestjord, actually. And we would refuel and then head back to Makrahanish. So some of those missions, we had, they were 16 hour uh, days for the, uh, in the air. Wow. Wow. I mean, what sort of facilities did you have on board as far as food and other facilities? <laughs> Spartan. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, for food, uh, we we just did box lunches. I think the a lot of P three crews actually would cook stuff. Uh, in VQ two, we we didn't do that. Uh, and then for kind of creature comforts, uh, number one was not a problem. Uh, <laughs> n- n- number two was a problem, and there was actually a. Uh, there was kind of a, a tradition that everyone did their damnedest to avoid doing a number two. And it didn't happen very often, but it did. if it did happen, whoever, what was called breaking the code, whoever broke the code then had to buy a case of beer for the crew. But once the code had been broken, it was open. Anybody could do it. <laughs> This is the sort of detail we're looking for on Cold War conversations. You know, they're not interested in the equipment and stuff like that. It's, you know, how do you take a dump on a plane? Well, and of course, this is my my first tour in the 80s. It was all men. Uh, my second tour in the 90s, we had women in the crew. So uh, I got to hand it to those girls. They were good sports. <laughs> Um, now, we talked about hijacking earlier, and th- there's another one, but this time it's not airborne, it's seaborne. It's the Achille Lauro cruise ship in October 85. Yeah, o- October 85, a uh, a cruise ship, I think it had started in Naples or somewhere there in Italy, but at some point it was hijacked by Palestinian terrorists. They were asking that the Israelis release, I don't remember, something like 100 Palestinians that had been uh, uh, incarcerated in in Israel, and uh, so of course you know the, the Israelis had kind of a no uh, negotiations with hostages kind of um, mindset, and there was actually so they ended up uh, they murdered an American uh, an elderly American passenger who also was Jewish, shot him in his wheelchair and then dumped him over the side. And so then they eventually, somehow they got into, uh, I think into Alexandria and the, the Egyptians were giving them asylum. That obviously put a lot of pressure on Mubarak because I'm sure Reagan was screaming at him. And so they wanted to get them out of, out of the country as soon as possible. So a, uh, and a deal was reached that the the Palestinians at this point had moved their headquarters to Tunis in Tunisia, and it was agreed that the Egyptians would fly the fly the uh, hijackers out uh, covertly on an Egyptian airplane and take it take them to Tunis. Well, American intelligence uh, had gotten indications of this, so and the USS Saratoga was actually. Uh, just uh, up near heading into the Adriatic Sea, they were on their way to a port call, I think going to uh, the northern Adriatic. Anyway, they got the word to turn around, and we had an airplane that was out there flying, and they got the word uh, to, to go over by Crete, and were given some information and told, you want you want to be looking for this Egyptian air flight, and you know they were probably given a flight number or something. 
And that was a pretty easy task for us because they, they were just on commercial aircraft routes and all those frequencies are all published. And so it was very easy to assign multiple operators just to the various frequencies that we knew the air traffic control activity would occur on. And they knew the flight number. So sure enough, they, they hear the airplane check in. It gives a position report and a time for its next position. So they pass that off to the E-2 and then the E-2 gets the F-14s. And the F-14s then uh, come in, it's, it's night, and they do a, a no-lights intercept, and they fly right up next to the Egyptian airplane, and with their flashlights, they shine them on the tail to, to com- uh, confirm that it was the correct tail number on the airplane. And then they pulled up alongside and turned on all their anti-collision lights uh, and uh, established communications with the Egyptian airplane. At this point, the Egyptian pilot is screaming to Athens, the air traffic controllers, he's being hijacked by the U.S. Navy. And uh, the, the the Navy guys tell him, uh, you're going to Siganella or else. And uh, so uh, he agreed, uh, although he wasn't happy about it. And so they escorted him to Siganella. And when they landed the airplane, the U.S. Navy SEALs immediately surrounded the Egyptian Air 737. And then a couple of minutes after that, the Italian Carbonari surrounded the Navy SEALs. So you had kind of what we call in Westerns a Mexican standoff between the uh, Navy SEALs and the uh, Italian Carbonari. Eventually, word came down to the to the Navy that, okay, we're, we're going to let the Italians... Uh, the Italians are going to take this one, and so they uh, they they let them take the prisoners. And then the Italian Prime Minister, of course, he didn't want anything anything to do with this. This is a hot potato in his hand. And then he actually, kind of like the Egyptians and the Achille Laro handing the hi, uh, hijackers over to Tunisia, he made a deal with the Yugoslavs, and they they spirited these hijackers out of the country. And I think about 10 or 20 years later, and there was a movie about it, I think, where the Mossad eventually tracked down these guys and got them. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And were they the only passengers on this plane? Or? No, I, yeah, I don't, yeah, I think it was just a chartered uh, airplane. So I, I was in Athens at the time. I was not on that EP3, but the other crew, uh, we were usually at two airplanes, two crews operating at Athens at any one time, and we usually flew every other day. But my friends were up in the air, and they all uh, they all got to participate in that bit of history. And one thing that's interesting is the, the EP-3 role in that operation was never discussed ever. Uh, the, the E-2 always got credit for everything. And yet another hijack in November 85, another Egypt airplane. Yeah, and actually, I think what's really interesting about this one, I believe it was the exact same airframe that was involved in the other hijacking. Uh, But I I remember that well. I was home in Rota, Spain, asleep in my bed about 7 or 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning, and my roommate knocked on my door, and he came in, and he told me, hey, I'm leaving. They just called me. I'm going. There's been a hijacking, and we were launching a crew out of... uh, out of Rhoda to go down and plus up our crews in Athens so they could support the the, the hijacking. Uh, and so then later in the day, uh, they came and got me, and, and I was on another crew that was getting sent down. We were actually, though, uh, we were flying down to Athens, but we made a stop in Siganella, Sicily, 
because our carrier-based EA-3B Skywarrior from the squadron needed some parts, and they used to run the carrier onboard delivery planes out of Sigonella. So we uh, landed, dropped off the parts, and then uh, we were just going to be on the ground for a few minutes and head back down to Athens. So as I, as I told you, the facilities, uh, the creature comfort facilities on board the plane weren't so uh, great. So whenever you got on the ground, you always took the chance to use a bathroom on the ground. So one of the guys uh, went into the, the COD squadron hangar, VR-24, and went in to use the bathroom. And when he came out, he was a little shaken because he said in, in that hangar in there, there's about 100 guys in black clothes and black faces. They all have big guns and they're all, uh, they're all just working on their weapons. So I think it was probably one of those uh, U.S. Special Operations Force groups that we don't talk about. And But anyway, before we took off from Sigonella, the word came in that the Egyptian commandos had actually landed in Malta, stormed the plane, gained entry to the plane, shot all the hijackers, but unfortunately they shot about half the hostages too. And I think there were about 50 people killed on that wow. plane. Wow. December 85, some slightly happier times. You meet your, your wife. Yeah, I was down in Athens and... Uh, down there for the month, and at the time, Beth, uh, who became my wife, she was living in the United States in the D.C. area, but she was the defense contractor, and they were putting software in in the hospitals and training the operators on how to use the new software. So she was just in town for about three days, and we overlapped, and then kind of the stars aligned because we were sent out one night on a mission to fly off Libyan due to bad weather. We ended up coming back, and we had seen these girls before we had gone uh, gone to go flying, and so we decided to give them a call. And they had already made, made dates to go out with these RC-135 guys, but when they heard the Navy guys were available, they dumped them, and we ended up going, uh, going out with them, and then the rest is history. It's <laughs> a great story. Great story. 86 is not a quiet year for you. Um, Libya starts to get more lively. Yeah, 80, 86 was amazing. Uh, you know, at that point, I had mentioned Sarat USS Saratoga had done the uh, aircraft carrier, had done the uh, Kili Laro capture. And then we had also brought in a, you know, we very frequently would have two carriers operating in the bed and Coral Sea and Saratoga were, were there. And we didn't mention it in December, there was another big uh, terrorist event that happened. Uh, there were simultaneous attacks at the Vienna and Rome airports. Uh, at one of them was at the El Al counter, and at the other one, it was, I think, Pan Am or some American airline. But anyway, a, a bunch of people uh, were shot by Palestinian terrorists. There might have been a Libyan involvement. But anyway, suddenly uh, the, the Navy, uh, it was decided we were going to start really uh, putting the pressure on Libya. So uh, in January, we had about uh, a week of double carrier ops uh, working below the line of death and did that for several days and had uh, generated a lot of uh, Libyan flight activity in response to that. But there were no, uh, no hostile actions. Everything was pretty peaceful. And then in February, uh, same thing happened. About a, a week, where double carrier ops, and and once again, the the uh, Libyans had been complaining a lot in the media, but uh, there had been some other activity. And then in March, uh, originally the Saratoga had been scheduled to go home, 
and to be relieved by USS America, but the decision was made we would up the up the ante and go to three carriers uh, in the central Mediterranean. And so the uh, triple carrier ops happened for about a week in, in the middle of March, and I was down there flying during all this, and that's when all the shots got fired. Uh, it started off, we had... Uh, airplanes operating behind the line of death, and Libya had recently installed SA-5 Gammon surface-to-air missiles, which had about five times the range of the SA-2s, which had previously been their top missile. And so they actually fired uh, a couple of them, uh, and that generated some uh, strikes on, on the SAM sites. And then that night, they brought out some patrol boats uh that ended up uh, being sunk both by uh, uh, harpoon cruise missiles fired by the USS Richmond K. Turner and then some A-6s uh, uh, hit uh, shot some patrol boats with anti-ship missiles and I think also maybe dropped some bombs on them. So anyway, sunk, a, I don't know, maybe three Libyan patrol boats that night. And things were pretty, uh, after that, they kind of ramped down and the Saratoga headed back to the United States and we had two carrier battle groups out there. And then about two weeks later, there was a terrorist bombing in Berlin that, in a, the LaBelle Disco, and it killed uh, at least a couple U.S. service members. And there was actually uh, intelligence that uh, tied Libyan intelligence to having conducted that operation. So that was when uh, the... Uh, El Dorado Canyon came uh, came about. So this is the U.S. bombing operation on Libya, the F-111 attack from the U.K., which I think at the time was one of the longest bombing raids aside from the, the Vulcan attack on Port Stanley during the Falklands War. Yeah, I think... And... Uh, the uh, I think there were 18 F- F-111s and four EF-111s and then a whole slew of tankers. And what kind of made the mission more, uh, more difficult was the fact that the French and the Spanish denied overflight rights. So they actually had to come out of the UK, fly down the, down the west coast of Spain, through the Straits of Gibraltar, all the way across, and then uh, through the Straits of Sicily and then turn south. So the Air Force was tasked with targets in the Tripoli area, and then the Navy had two carrier battle groups, American Coral Sea, and they were tasked with targets in the uh, Benghazi area. And, and it all went off uh, in, in mid-April, just one night, uh, and I think the, the actual strike itself was probably 30 minutes. Uh, they got in pretty quick, got out. And then that was that was pretty effective because that pretty much shut down Gaddafi and terrorist activity until the Lockerbie bombing. But there was an interesting um, visitor to uh, Rota. Yeah, a good friend of mine was the squadron duty officer at VQ2. And I don't know, maybe two in the morning, he got a call uh, and he was basically told, don't ask any questions, just open your hangar doors and one of the F-111s that had flown in the strike on the way back to the UK, and once again, they had to go all the way back, back through the Straits of Gibraltar and up. But anyway, as, as they were transiting home, he developed a bleed air leak and had to divert uh, and came into Rota. And of course, 
the Spanish had already denied overflight uh, for for the mission, so there was uh, there was they there was a concerted effort to kind of keep this on the down low. So they brought that F one eleven in and then parked him in the hangar, closed the hangar doors, repaired him, and then a couple nights later, under cover of darkness, they flew him out. And uh, as far as we know, I'm, I'm sure the U.S. Embassy talked to the Spanish uh, Ministry of Defense about that, but uh, it was kept very hushed up. So when we get to August, September 86, there's a big NATO exercise, Northern Wedding 86. Tell me about that. Yeah, this was a little bit like the one, the Ocean Safari the year before. I had been uh, working in operations and I was the lead planner for it. So I got to go over, I went over to the US about a month before it. But the way this exercise was going to work out was... uh, once again, the, the carrier battle group was going to form off off the east coast of the United States and then kind of convoy across. Something that was kind of new in this exercise was we had recently uh, reactivated the Iowa-class battleships, and they each had 32 Tomahawk cruise missiles installed. And during this transit, there was a big exercise involving uh, over-the-horizon targeting using uh, non-organic or, or off-board assets uh, uh, in order to provide uh, targeting for the ships so they could hit hit tracks that were outside the range of their own sensors or even the sensors of the carrier battle group aircraft. That was back in the days where there used to be an anti-ship version of Tomahawk. That was retired uh, a couple decades ago. But that uh, So that was the first part of the exercise as we were making our way across to Iceland and then uh, the second part, uh, we started off flying out of Brunswick, Maine, which is in the north, north, far northeast corner of the United States, and flew the first few missions out of there. Then we moved our detachment up to Keflavik, Iceland, and flew for the rest of the uh, exercise out of Iceland. And the, once again, the carrier went across into the Vestfjord to go hide in those, hide in the the terrain shadowing of, of the fjord, kind of the same uh, same actions as the year before, uh, elicited a lot of, uh, this was a little different though, because we were very involved uh, in the early part when the, the TU-95 bears were coming out to try to locate the carrier every day, and they, they'd fly very far out. I don't recall if they were going beyond Iceland, but if not that, they, they, you know, they had extremely long legs, and their job, the, the Bear Delta had an over-the-horizon targeting. That was their primary mission. And so one of, our, one of our roles was to detect the bear so we could get fighters on him once again at 200 miles. And we wanted to have fighters on him before he had loca- detected where the uh, battle group was. I mean, you mentioned those Iowa-class battleships. I mean, I did find it incredible that a World War II battleship was brought out of retirement in the 1980s as a launch platform for cruise missiles there were four of them uh iowa wisconsin missouri and new jersey and uh new jersey had actually been brought out for vietnam all four of them had been retired in the late 40s i think I, i think they brought a couple of them out for korea and then new jersey came out for vietnam but then they completely uh updated them uh, during the early part of the Reagan administration, put on uh, tomahawks, uh, put on uh, harpoon anti-ship missiles. And one of the interesting proposals at the time 
was to, you know, the, the battleships used to have these big 16-inch guns, which incidentally, I think they could fire a 2,600-pound, so about an 1,100-kilogram shell, and they could shoot that about 40 kilometers or about 23 yeah. miles. So they, they had pretty amazing, like, there's nothing like that uh, ever since World War II, since those guns, there's, there's nothing like that. But uh, one of the proposals was they used to have two turrets up front with three guns each and one in the back. And there was a pro- proposal to remove the rear turret, put on a flight deck, and carry Harriers on that. <laughs> But th- that never came into fruition. But that 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 would have been a pretty impressive ship. Yeah. Uh, so, but the battleships were amazing, and and of course, you know, one of the things I think that made them also attractive was they they were pretty big, so they had extensive, uh, and they were designed to be flagships for back in World War II. So you could put uh, staffs on board, bring in you know the battle group uh, command or something like that, and put them on there and have them uh, carry out that function. So we, we and they actually fired those guns in the Persian Gulf War, and uh, kind of a funny story about that is the I think it was Wisconsin was sitting off of uh, off of Iraq, and they had these uh, rudimentary unmanned aerial vehicles called Pioneer back then, and it would have a camera and it would daddle or you know it would link it back to the ship, and the uh, the ship was within. Uh, range of this land target and it was the first time ever that a surrender was made to a unmanned aerial vehicle because those guys didn't want to get pounded by the guns <laughs> brilliant brilliant because i've been on this one in los angeles isn't there yeah iowa iowa's in los angeles missouri is at pearl harbor wisconsin is at uh, norfolk and uh uh, New Jersey is up across from Philadelphia and Camden, New Jersey. So all four of them are museums. I now. went to see the I- Iowa in in Los Angeles, and it's an immensely impressive ship. Um, and I was particularly interested in all the Cold War hardware that was still on there because it still had the anti aircraft systems. You know, the multiple uh, guns in order to bring down any uh, anti ship missiles. Well, you know, it's interesting. One of the greatest challenges when they brought those ships out was manning the engineering spaces. And they actually brought out some retired guys that had, you know, been in maybe 35 years and had been retired. And they brought out some old timers that wanted to, okay, I'll do it. And uh, that was really the the reason those ships were retired. They had a great deal of capability, but they were so manpower intensive that I think it was determined it wasn't affordable. Incredible. Moving on from Northern Wedding, you, you uh, are particularly impressed by the RAF in October 1986 yes. and their non-rudimentary service. Yeah, I went to uh, – we, we worked out of Witten, England, which was the, the base that the RAF's 51 squadron flew out of. And they had three Nimrod Romeos uh, that were unlike any other kind of Nimrod. They basically had the the same mission as a, an EP-3 or an RC-135. And I had the opportunity to fly a, a mission on the inner German border with them, taking off out of Witten and then going up and just flying up and down that uh, inner German border. And, you know, I talked about how the 
you know, food service on an EP3 was pretty lacking and we were eating out of box lunches. But what I'll never forget on the Nimrod R was after takeoff, here came a guy down the trolley with tea and crumpets. <laughs> very civilized, very civilized. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, it was. That, and that was that was an interesting airplane because that was uh, that was jammed full of operators. I think they had 26 guys in, on consoles in the back. And one thing I didn't understand, uh, nobody told me uh, at the time, was, but I didn't understand that the RAF didn't officially acknowledge their existence for a few years until after I had left. Uh, so I was going around telling people I had flown on this British SIGINT bird, and I didn't know it was this big secret. <laughs> well, they didn't get you to sign the Official Secrets Act, or... <laughs> <laughs> I'm more worried about having crumpets on a plane like that. I'd be worried about getting the butter in the keyboard or something. <laughs> they actually did have uh, – th- th- those airplanes were very impressive in terms of the technology in the back. Uh, they they were very, very yeah. good. Yeah, I'm a, a volunteer at the Avro Heritage Museum up near uh, Manchester, uh-huh. and um, we've got a um, Nimrod fuselage there. Okay. And we've just taken a Shackleton as well, uh-huh. um, which yeah. we don't have space for yet, so it's in bits at the moment. But it came from another museum in Manchester. So uh, there's quite okay. a sort of signals intelligence um, heritage um, there. Yeah, and, and one thing that I, I'd, you know, I'd mentioned, I flew with 51 Squadron and the Nimrod R, and now if you go across to Lincolnshire to Waddington, you find 51 squadrons flying the RC-135. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. We uh, don't build British much anymore now. Um, (laughs) Okay, so um, you're back in Spain for uh, some other exercises around the Harpoon anti-ship missile. Yeah, we did some uh, work with the regular P3Cs, uh, would carry harpoons, and they were always reliant pretty much to to be able to use their weapon, they needed to use their radar uh, in order to f- localize the target for fi- prior to engaging them. And the idea was with us, uh, an EP3, when we went up, we did not transmit. We, we did not run the radar or things like that. We didn't want to do anything to help somebody else detect us. So we would just be we would be using receivers to detect other guys' transmissions and then doing direction finding that and trying to triangulate and, and working with the P3s so they could conceivably shoot their harpoons without ever uh, having to fire up their own radar, which would give the potential target of the harpoon you know, if you have suddenly have a radar transmission coming from the west, you know, they might get alerted to the west as opposed to if they're kind of just out there blending in and then the harpoon gets fired and the, the terminal seeker on the harpoon didn't come on until about two minutes before it arrived at the target. So that would be uh, a much better chance of achieving surprise. And in May 87, you're sent back to Schleswig-Holstein. Yep, this is my last time to fly in the Baltic, and I, I was I was the mission commander in charge, having a great time flying out there on my last Baltic debt. And uh, w- this was kind of we were actually out there during that. It was just a week we were there, and that was we happened to coincide with the time with the same uh, time that the USS Stark, uh, which was a frigate, was hit in the during the Iran Iraq tanker wars a uh iraqi mirage f1 
uh, fired a couple of exosets uh, at the uh, at the Stark. And to tell you the truth, I'm not sure if they thought it was an Iranian tanker or if they knew it was a. I, I don't recall what the case was, but that was kind of something that was going on at that time. But there we were out flying in the uh, in the Baltic, and the thing I remember the most, well, one was that MiG 29s were now out, so we finally got to see the MiG 29. But the other was we kind of stumbled upon an exercise where the Russians had these old whiskey-class submarines that were uh, based in the, in the Baltic. And they also had these old seaplanes that were called BE-12 males. And the males had an anti-submarine warfare mission. And we just kind of stumbled across. Uh, it was a nice clear day, and we saw it all down below us. But the males were uh, simulating torpedo attacks on this whiskey-class submarine, who was actually operating on the surface, so it was kind of kind of easy for the uh, males. But we were getting to see them; they would simulate uh, torpedo launches by dropping die markers. So it was kind of fun just flying, orbiting above these uh, this Russian submarine while this was going down. And uh, you know, to tell you the truth, the the one thing in the in the business flying EP3s, you know, for every eight to ten hour mission it was usually pretty boring. <laughs> there was usually something decent going on for 30 minutes, maybe. So, uh, and stumbling upon a submarine, having die markers dropped on, and that would count as something decent. Uh, otherwise, like I said, uh, it got pretty old. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've heard similar from, uh, Nimrod cruise as well. Cause it was just day, in, day and day out. It was pretty much the same thing, except when it wasn't. I mean, it's it's interesting that this um, exercise you came across because the B twelve is sort of like a turboprop amphibian aircraft, isn't yep. it? So, yep. Um, you know, both quite elderly planes, or both quite elderly yes, was. pieces of equipment. Let's say. Yeah, and they they subsequently replaced it with a jet. Uh, I think it's called Albatross is the, and I don't even know if that's a military aircraft or not, or if it's just a civilian. Uh, that, that company, BE-12 is like Beriev or something is the name of the aircraft bureau that makes them, and they make them commercial as well. But the, so the BE-12, that was one of their maritime patrol aircraft. Then they also had the IL-38 May, which a lot of times it's called the P-3 ski because it kind of looked like a P-3. Right, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Strange. Uh, to be exercising with those um, two pieces of equipment. But anyway, probably just to entertain you. You know, they knew you were bored. Well, well, you know, I mentioned it was a whiskey-class submarine, which were elderly at the time also. And whiskeys actually, they kind of, I think it was around 1980 when one of those ran aground in Sweden. And it was called Whiskey on the Rocks. Well, you can, I mean, a newspaper (laughs) is never going to avoid a headline like that, are they? Come on. Come on. Um, we ha- I had some questions from uh, some of the uh, listeners who wanted to ask okay. you. And one of them was, what instructions were you given if you had to come down over, you had to land on enemy territory or in enemy territorial waters? Well, w- we did have instructions that, that there and it was basically a a red, yellow, and green uh, thing. In other words, countries were classed as red, yellow, and green. And if it was a red, you weren't supposed to go under there under any circumstances. If it was a yellow, 
you really weren't supposed to go there, but if someone was going to get killed, maybe you could get away going with there. And if it was a green, it was okay to go there if you couldn't make it home. And the way those were racked and stacked, the Reds were generally Warsaw Pact. But uh, it, it, this whole this whole thing, we weren't given a lot of instructions. And then it really came to light in uh, April 1st of 2000 when our sister squadron VQ-1 had an aircraft flying uh, off of uh, China and a Chinese fighter came up alongside and bumped them. The fighter then crashed into the sea, killing the pilot, and the, the EP-3 crew ended up uh, dropping out of the sky, and that pilot was faced with a very difficult decision, and he ended up making the decision to go into China. A lot of people have uh, criticized him. I, I, won't, I won't say it one way or the other, but that would have, that would have been a red country. So was there like any self-destruct mechanisms in there to destroy the equipment or was it just hammers? No, and you know, we and at least in the 80s and the 90s when I was doing this, all, all we had was a fire axe. Right. So we really had we really had nothing. Although, you know, in the 80s, we really didn't have that much we didn't have much in the way of computers. So it'd be pretty easy to destroy uh, uh I, a lot of that it was just open up the window and throw out the boxes. Uh but uh, I, I know the case in the year 2000, they had not, when they lost the plane in China, they had not really updated the, they just had a fire axe too. And they had all kinds of computer hard drives and things like that now on the airplane. And they did their best, but there was, uh, there was some compromise. As far as different intercepts with different countries, can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I already mentioned that at least in in my experience in the Baltic, everything with the with the Russians was pretty benign. Uh, they just come alongside, pull and fly along with you for a couple minutes, and then go home. Uh, then, if you get down when you're in the Baltic too, there there was there's only two countries that could intercept us, and we wouldn't know they were coming. And the Israelis they would intercept us all the time and we would never know they were coming. So, and I'll get back down to the med, but the other ones were in Sweden. And uh, I don't think it's really fair because we were looking to the right, not to the <laughs> left, but they used to routinely intercept us and we never knew they were coming. <laughs> and then, uh, but down in the med, uh, we had instructions not to be intercepted by Libyans. So we monitored Libya pretty closely and they would, they would launch fighters routinely against us We'd always have enough warning that we would generally just, you know, the the thing with the fighters is they have very short legs. So if you can just uh, turn away and go an extra fifty miles north or something like that, they can't they can't get you, uh, unless maybe they want it to be a one way trip. R Libyans would routinely uh, launch on us, but we would always know they were coming, and we would always uh, be able to just avoid it, and, and they'd go home, and we'd go back on track. We did actually, I mentioned that we had the EA-3B Skywarrior flying off the carrier, and in uh, January of 86, uh, in that first part when things were heating up with Libya, one of our, uh, we called the Skywarrior, was also known as the Whale, and one of our whales was out flying. They actually did have a Libyan MiG-25 that went screaming by them, and they had not detected it. And fortunately, the Libyans, I think, were just showing that they could. And those guys went home without firing a shot. But uh, that was kind of an interesting situation. 
and then other countries, uh, like I said, the, the Israelis were amazing. We would never know they were coming. Uh, that's because they're very good at coming up, not running their radars and not talking on the radios. So they, I don't know how they did it, but they're just very accomplished at that. And then the uh, the other countries, you know, you would occasionally get launched on. And a lot of time, NATO countries would also, they'd call us up and ask if their interceptors could just use us as, as a target of opportunity. And we'd do that routinely just to give them a live target to go against. And did the EP3 have any sort of like flares or anything like that if you were locked on? What, what was it just get get as low as possible and hopefully lose them in the ground clutter? Yep, yep. The tactic was if an interceptor was coming, we would fall out of the sky and and try to get down into the into the clutter and the waves. Right, right. Like the uh, Able Archer pilot. Ex- exactly. Wow. Exactly. The yep. Wow. With the submarine commanders I've spoken to, they've often had encounters with the AGIs, these Soviet so-called trawlers, which appear to have. Um, rather large numbers of aerials attached to them. Um, Were any of those encountered by you at all? Uh, They were all over the place. Uh, A lot of times they would hang out off of bases, either in the U.S. or the U.K., you know, Hollylock or or Fastlane, you know, where the British SSBNs come out of. But a lot of times they would hang out there. They would occasionally, uh, the the Russia, the Soviets used to have something that would be called a marker or a tattletale that would just kind of uh, follow the carrier around and stay with them as best they could. Uh, the AGIs, that was a little more difficult for them because I think they probably only have a top speed of, you know, I don't know, 15 knots, something like that. So if the carrier wanted to kick it in, uh, they could easily lose them. A lot of times the Russians would use a, a cash and class destroyer as the tattletale. Uh, that thing was really fast. And we have further information such as videos and links in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, this show wouldn't exist without our generous Patreons, so I want to thank one and all of them for their support. You can very easily become a Patreon by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, 
received a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.